You're listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Lubbock, Texas. Redeemer Church is a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. If you would like to get more information or donate to this ministry, please visit RedeemerLubbock.org. Good morning, Redeemer. My name is Cody McMurray. I'm one of the church planting residents here at Redeemer. And if you're new here and you have no idea what that means, that basically just means that this church is all about equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. And uh, we're a gospel-centered, missional family of disciples making disciples and churches planting churches. And so what they did a couple of years ago, the leadership here at this church, is they established a residency program to help train leaders up so that they could go out and plant new churches that are centered on the gospel and lived missional lives for the glory of God. And so that's what me and my family have been doing for the past two years here is we have immersed ourselves in this church. We have submitted to all the curriculum within the residency and also grown and learned uh, so much about what it means to lead a gospel-centered family of disciple makers. And uh, that's what we hope to do. So we are being sent out. Uh, This is actually our last Sunday here. Uh, We're being sent out to Wichita Falls to start a new church there. And so today is actually really bittersweet. Um, I'm thrilled to be here because this is a church that I've grown to love because I'm so grateful for their heartbeat to get the gospel to all peoples in all places right now. And um, it's, a, it's a special place. And so um, I'm thrilled to open up God's word together with you uh, and to see what it says. Today, we're going to look at the beginning of the church. How did this whole thing start? Why are we here today? Why are we here today? And so we're going to be in Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 8. It's going to be on the screen next to me. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, it says this. In my first book, O Theophilus, the first book was Luke, because Luke is the author, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when... uh, So when they had come and asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel, he said to them, for it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authorities, but this is what you need to know. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is the very last thing that Jesus said right before he ascended to his disciples. Go and be my witnesses. Go everywhere with the message of this gospel until it fills and completes the earth. This is the start of the church. And I don't know what you think about now whenever you think of church, but I'm sure it's a far cry from what they thought standing on this hill 2,000 years ago. You see, the, the Greek word for church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia, Ecclesia, which means a gathering of people united around a common identity or purpose. So the church was simply a gathering of people who came together around a belief that Jesus was who he said he was. And this belief started a movement. The church was born as a movement, and it's still moving today. It's still moving today. But something happened 
in, as a hiccup almost in history during the Middle Ages. And some call this the Dark Ages, interestingly. Because in this terrible thing during the Dark Ages, uh, there was a shift in theological thinking. That the church was no longer a movement centered around a mission that people were a part of, but it turned into, the church turned into a place or a meeting place where there was religious services that were done for you. And in fact, our English term church is translated from the Greek word kirk, which literally means the Lord's house. The Lord's house. See the difference? A movement that you belong to or come to a place where the Lord's house is. This shift in thinking changed the fundamental way that people thought about church. It changed the fundamental way that, that the people thought of what the church actually was. And so it's, for a time, for, in just history, for a time there was a little bit of a lull in people understanding that they were a part of the movement because they all were worried about where they were going to the meeting where they're going to the meeting of the church. But then in the 16th century, something amazing happened. And God raised up a reformer by the name of William Tyndale. And what Tyndale did was really risky. He was a scholar and understood, and he was fluent in Koine Greek. And so he decided to translate the Bible from Greek into common English. Because he knew and understood that if Christianity was a movement, then the people had to understand the message in their tongue. And so what, what, uh, what happened during this time was it was really crazy and they did not like what was going on because every time William Tyndale got to the word ecclesia in the New Testament, he translated it as congregation and not church so that he would help the people understand that they are a part of a movement sent around a mission and not a part of a meeting that has religious services done for you. And as you can imagine, this infuriated the uh, powers that be at the time. And so they decided to do what they did with most of the reformers and sentenced him to death. But what was amazing about this is William Tyndale said something so, so amazing in the face of authority, knowing that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and doing exactly what God wanted him to do. He said this, if God spares my life, this is when he was on trial, or protects my ministry, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know more of the scriptures than you. Looking at the religious leaders of the day. Isn't that amazing? Like he was so filled with the Holy Spirit that he's like, you know what, go ahead and kill me. It doesn't matter because I am doing the will of God and there's going to be a lineage behind what I am doing so that little boys everywhere, little girls everywhere, small, ordinary people can know and understand what the message of the word of God is. And we are here today because we are beneficiaries of this blessing. And another thing that he did was as he was being burned at the stake, uh, someone recorded him saying a prayer, Lord, please open the King of England's eyes. And if you've ever seen a copy, and we all have, of the King James Version of the Bible, you know that God answered that prayer because uh, that was the first commissioned large-scale version of the Bible spread in common English. Now, this is amazing, and I know it's a whole lot of historical context, but I think it applies to us still today. Because it begs the question, am I, are you in this room thinking of Redeemer Church as a movement that you belong to or just a meeting place that you go to to have religious services done for you? That's the, that's the question of the day. Is this a meeting or is this a movement? And it all depends on your faith in the message. 
It all depends on your faith in the message. And so I, I guarantee you the apostles, whenever they were on this hill and they saw Jesus ascending into heaven, proclaiming, hey, go into all the world with this gospel, they thought, oh, we have got to start a movement. They, they thought nothing about the meeting. They said, we have to get a whole lot of momentum behind this message because they, the whole world needs to know and understand. And we need to remember that these were common people. These were fishermen. These were tax collectors. These were, these were zealots. God did not choose the kings and nobilities and the artists and the philosophers of his day to, show, to reveal himself. He, he, he revealed himself through very common people, just like you and I. Just like you and I. And so what I want to do today is reveal two key principles and convictions that the disciples have uh, that started the, the church as a movement, and I think it still applies to us today. Okay, number one, the message of the gospel had captured the hearts and minds of the disciples. My question to us is, has it captured yours? Has it captured yours? See, the disciples knew and understood that Jesus was a substitute for our sins. That Jesus' death was a sacrificial atonement for what we did in our rebellion against God. He wasn't just another prophet. He wasn't a religious leader trying to start a big, large group gathering. He was God himself that created all of humanity and then entered into the humanity that he created and say, I am on a rescue mission. I'm on a rescue operation to save my people. And we crucified him. We crucified him gladly because we didn't want Jesus to be Lord of our lives. We didn't want God to be in charge. You and I want to be in charge of our own lives. And so our sin, our rebellion put him on the cross and we were glad about it. And the, the, the great irony of our Christian faith is that was actually God's means of salvation uh, of Jesus being on the cross for our, us all to be saved. This is incredible. It shows how amazing God is that even though Jesus himself, God himself came down to earth, we crucified him and yet that was his plan all along. And they believed that Jesus had raised from the dead and this was so crucial because they'd seen him with their eyes. And we here in this room that believe in Jesus, believe the eyewitness testimonies that they actually did see Jesus raised from the dead. And because this was true, they knew that when Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, they centered their lives around it. And they said, there's nothing, nowhere I won't go to make this, uh, this truth a reality in my world. There's nothing I won't do. You see, Jesus, they'd seen Jesus in every single aspect of his ministry. They'd seen him stop hurricanes. They'd seen him heal leopards. They'd seen him do miraculous things. They'd seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet, whenever it was his hour that he needed the power of God, whenever he was on the cross, he willingly died. He willingly died for you and for me. He emptied himself of all that power that he used to bless others to give us the greatest blessing, which, which was Jesus' death in our place. This was the message that the disciples believed with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, and with all their strength. This was the faith that they tried to profess to all the world. This is the message that they were testifying and being a witness to, to all the world. And I think it's important for us to define what faith is because it's hard for us to know, hey, has this message captured our hearts and minds if we don't have a very clear biblical understanding of what does the Bible say whenever it talks about faith? 
Because uh, let's be honest, the culture around us has kind of has kind of muddied the waters about what faith and belief actually are. Let me give you an example. Multiple times this week, I've used the word faith and belief, and it kind of went a little something like this: I have absolute faith that Patrick Mahomes is going to win the Super Bowl today. Okay, it doesn't even matter if he's three touchdowns behind in the first half or the first quarter. I believe that he's going to go all the way back, throw however many touchdown passes, do some Mahomes magic, and win the Super Bowl for the Texas Tech Red. I mean, the for the Kansas City Chiefs. All right, and I'm, what am I doing? I'm saying, yeah, I, I believe he's going to do this, but, and I say I have faith that he's going to do that, but that is not what biblical faith is. That's just an informed prediction. That's a wishful expectation. What does the Bible say that faith actually is? So I have four key components so that we can know and understand if we have committed our lives to the message. We committed our lives. Number one, first component of faith is very, very simple. You have to have knowledge. Knowledge of the purpose and plan of God. Who is God? Who is Jesus? What is the gospel? What did Jesus accomplish here on earth? This is very simple. You cannot have faith without having the proper understanding of who God is and what he has done. Number two, you have to have assent to that knowledge. You have have to have agreement with what uh, the knowledge of God is in the Bible. See, the knowledge of God requires you to submit to the truth of it. See, it's not just enough to have the knowledge of God up here. It has to work deep into your heart until it changes you at the desire level. That's what it means to have agreement with the knowledge of God. It's so important that it's not just up here. It's not just a couple of Bible facts. It's not a couple of memorized verses that you had from whenever you're in preschool, but it's something that has so, you have so thought about long enough to where it changes your whole motivation and trajectory in life. That's what it means to have agreement to the knowledge and purpose and plan of God. This is number three. Number three is you have to have a love commitment because of the purpose and plan and knowledge of God. And now I almost just said love here, like a core element of faith is love. But then, then I realized that we have a, a congregation here that is made up of mostly young men who have no idea what love is. And so I decided to, to add, add that love commitment level. So it, it kind of expands the definition of what I'm talking about here. This is, the, this is the reality. Whenever we have a proper understanding of who God is, And what he has done and accomplished for us in the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, what his resurrection means for us, and whenever we have worked that truth deep into our heart, the only normal response is worship. The only practical response, whenever this gets down into your heart, whenever you understand how much God actually loves you, your response is, I love you back. And I am committed to say that, Jesus, you are Lord Not only do I love you, but you are in control of my life. I will have from this point on a love commitment to where it's me and you in everyday life. That is what this means. I think there's a verse that that summarizes this really, really powerfully in Ephesians chapter 3. It says this in verse 17, May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints or all the believers what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. You see what it's saying here? He wants your understanding of who Jesus is to be so deep that you're able to carry, that your faith is is strong enough to carry the weight of God's love for you. 
See, it's so overwhelming that every time you sin, our, our thought reflection should be, oh, I'm terrible, I'm the worst. No, we continue to sin in the Christian life. You wanna know why? So we can look at God and say, God, you're this gracious. You even covered that? Even though yesterday I said I would never do that again. You're this gracious. You love me this much. And the only response whenever you see that, and the, the, the full measure of God's love for you, which will continue on through a lifetime and even on into eternity, you say, you fall down in worship and you say, I have a love commitment for this God because he is so beautiful in my sight. In my sight. And so in the fourth element is really important and I think it's an element that we miss often. And that fourth element of faith, biblical faith, is risk. Risk. Are you risking on behalf of your love commitment to God? Have you done that? Can you point to your life calculated risks that you've made because of your love commitment to Jesus? Because, it, because if not, I don't know if you actually have biblical faith. Because, because this is what it's talking about. Hebrews chapter 11, it, it, talk, it gives a laundry list of all the heroes of the faith and it doesn't describe their theology. It doesn't describe what they know about God. It describes the risk that they took on behalf of their faith. That's what it's doing. And so it, this also applies to us. It also applies to us. I, I knew that a love commitment always made you act differently back in 2012. In 2012, there was this girl, her name was Stephanie Migrant. She changed her name recently to Stephanie McMurray. Um, my name's Cody McMurray. I'm talking about my wife here, folks. Um, and whenever I started to date this girl back in 2012, I was just like, my life's different. I think about life different. I go through, my conversations with my friends are different. Everything is different because I might, my growing affection and love for this girl. And so I stopped playing Xbox, Call of Duty as much with my friends. I, I looked at flowers way more than I ever had before. Okay, my behavior was beginning to change in, in form. Why? Because of my love commitment that was forming within me. And all of that required me to start risking and doing different things because of my love commitment for her. The same is true for our faith. And you, you want to know what, what the disciples did with this information as soon as they knew that, oh, Jesus loves me and, and, and he resurrected from the dead and he told me to go to make disciples, guess what? All their life was risk at this point. They went, it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay to preach the gospel. It wasn't okay back in the first century uh, to, to, to change the trajectory of what the, uh, the Pharisees were saying. But they said, they said we don't care. You got to do what you got to do, and we got to do what we got to do. And all that we are going to do from this point on is to testify of the grace of God, that he loves us, that he gave us life for us, and that he rose from the dead because he is God, because he's God. And that is our responsibility to, today. You want to be a part of a movement? This is how the movement of the church has always moved. The people within the churches understand that they are a part of this movement through their faith in the message, requires them to risk. It requires them to risk. I have a video that I'm gonna throw up on the screen here in just a second, and it's just a group of teenagers. It's a college student, two teenagers, who uh, decided they wanted to grow in their faith. And I want you to hear what happened as a progression as they dug into God's word and began to understand and listen to who he was. Check this out. Me and Parker have been in a girl group since um, February of 2019. 
Me and Caleb have been in a grow group since, I guess, September of this year. Um, when I got to Tech, I got discipled and it transformed my life. And I wanted to do the same thing, so I met up with high school guys, and it just so happened that Parker and I really clicked. Um, and so seeing that happen, I was really excited to see him grow. And um, a cool step in that process was that he was actually able to teach um, on his own. Every week we would just meet up, and so eventually it was like that consistent, just in the Word, and then on my own, being in the Word, that kind of brought me to Christ. I met Caleb through the youth group, and so kind of we just kind of became really good friends through that. In the background of that is like I was becoming like a Christian. I was like starting to read the Bible every day. I was getting more and more knowledge. And I was like, at some point I was like, this is too good, but like to go share with others. And so I was like, I would like to do what Davis did to me and like get, kind of share that with someone else. Um, for me, it's been really fun that um, I get to like put everything aside and just have time to grow more in like God's word. and like understand because like he like, explains everything really well the things that I had trouble understanding but now it like clicks. Mainly talked about the Holy Spirit and God's grace and how like we cannot get into heaven by our works but only God's grace and that God loves us and no matter what we do he is willing to give us our, his own grace and his love through his son who died on the cross and that like really helped me to know that God loves me no matter what I do. I hope that he gets to the point where he like feels confident enough and like is able to share his faith with other people. Hear that? Chain of disciples. That's how you start a movement. That's how you start a movement. You can see the progression of what, how faith took hold in Parker's life as he was talking about it. He said, this guy was discipling me and teaching me and training me in the Bible. And as I dug into the Bible, it illuminated my mind so much that I said, yeah, this is true. This is true. And it deepened his love commitment for Jesus so much, so much that he said, this is too good not to share. Who can I find? Who can I find? This is how movements move, folks. This is how movements move. This is, and if you want to be a part of this movement, you have to move along with it because of the message of God. But I think, I think for so many of us, uh, this is scary, right? There's, there's so many fears that, that prop into our, our minds whenever we think, oh, let's go and, and do this. That's one of the reasons why we didn't put up some professional Christians up on this screen, okay? And these were just teenagers that said, hey, this is, this is the simplicity of the gospel, I want to believe it and multiply my lives. And a couple of ways that I think that we're scared are, probably number one is just, uh, you know, we're scared of, I don't think I know enough. I don't think I'm there yet. I don't think I'm there. Well, uh, risk doesn't require you to always be there, but um, I think it's a, a number one big concern and fear that we have whenever we're thinking about multiplying our lives. Number two, I think, I think we're, I think we're worried that we're going to be discovered as a hypocrite. I, I know I've, I've experienced this um, in my faith is that how can I share? How can I share with other people? How can I tell other people that they're supposed to repent of their sins that they're struggling with and turn and love Jesus whenever I feel like I can't even get over the sins that I struggle with? You know, and, and there's this sense of hypocrisy that, that, that runs deep into your soul that you feel like, oh, you know, 
that risking deal, it really isn't for me. Yeah, sure, I love Jesus and I know about him and I want to grow in his word, but I'm, not, I'm just not going to risk. And I think for other of us, um, and probably all of us, we, we feel this sense of, man, I'm afraid of what I'm going to turn into if I go all in with Jesus. Like, am I, am I really going to turn into Angela from The Office? If you're familiar with that, you're just like that uptight, judgmental person that no one really likes to be around and no one really likes. Is this, is this the cost? Is this the cost of discipleship? No one like me forever? No, no. But I think there, there's a fear of that, that if I turn into the Jesus person in my office, in my class, um, in, my, in my dorm room, with my roommates, then, um, then I'm going to be on the outs. And be on the outs. And that doesn't seem worth the risk right now to be the Jesus person. And so aren't you thankful, though? If you think about this, um, the disciples didn't have this mentality. They were always willing to risk. And if, and if you go on a map and you look at the distance between Lubbock, Texas, and Jerusalem, right where they were on this hill, it is 7,122 miles away. Jesus said, go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. Guess what, folks? We're at the ends. We're at the ends. And I'm not saying that uh, the, the mission is almost done. I think we're far from it. But we're, I'm saying that we are here talking about the finished work of Jesus because there have been faithful disciples, men and women, who would not shut up about the good news of Jesus until it got all the way here and permeated our culture to fill up this room right now. This is amazing, amazing, amazing truths that we need to know and understand. So how do we overcome our fears? How do we overcome our fears in disciple making? Because the reality is, is whenever we have churches crippled by fear, I've heard the church, the American church specifically, uh, described as a big uh, football, football game to where there's 22 people on the field in desperate need of rest, surrounded by 72,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise, okay? And so this church tries to exist to where you can mobilize and have every single person that is here to be a part of the movement of God. So how do we overcome our fears with that? And it brings me to my second and last point. The disciples submitted themselves to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Have you? Have you submitted yourself to the leadership of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is mentioned three times in the first eight verses of this, of, of this text that is talking about the start of the church of God. And so what's so important here is that even Jesus said, even Jesus said before he went to the, the cross, he said, hey, it's better for me to go. It's better for me to go away from you and be with the Father because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. It's going to be as if God is right there with you all, all the time. And, and this is described perfectly by verse 1 in Acts chapter 1 where it says this. It's a small little word that I skipped over quickly um, but has enormous significance of what it means to, to lead and grow in the leadership of the Holy Spirit. He says, in my first book, O Theophilus, I dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. In my first book, that's talking about the, the gospel of Luke. Luke, was, Luke, the author of this, was saying, hey, you know what? In the first book, I talked about all Jesus was accomplishing through his earthly body. And in my second book, I'm telling you all that Jesus is accomplishing through his churchly body, through me and you. 
through me and you. So this is significant because really all the authority to do and to live out the mission of God comes through the spirit of God. Verse five says this, and John baptized you with water, which basically means immerse you in water, but, but you will be immersed or baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, this is supposed to evoke this understanding of the Old Testament temple. And if you know anything about your Bibles, and it's, it's okay if you not, I'll explain it to you. But the, in the Old Testament temple, there was this inner chamber called the, 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 the Holy of Holies. And what happened whenever they erected all of this and they consecrated it, it said that there was a cloud that w- represented the Holy Spirit of God that rested on Uh, above the mercy seat in the holy of holies. And so this is significant because God said from the very beginning of his book that I am a God who dwells with my people. And Israel was a representation of that through the temple because the presence of God was constantly amongst the people of God in the holy of holies with the temple. And the temple was amazing. Not just, it wasn't just beautiful that that represents God, and it was. It was amazing because it was supposed to be a place that reflected the character and and person and plan of God to the nations. People came to the temple and were overwhelmed with who are these Israelite people? They are different. They are set apart. They are holy. And they said, why are you this way? Because we have the temple of the Lord and the presence of God in our midst. And we are his people. And he is our God. And he dwells with us. Literally, the connection point between heaven and earth was this holy of holies. Why do I give you all that information? It's because, do you know what Paul says in the New Testament? He says, whenever you believe the gospel, do you not know that you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That the presence of God, what we see right here, is going to immerse, is going to immerse on you that you yourselves now indwell the presence of the Holy Spirit that shows us and and convicts us to know that, hey, God is for us. All your fears can melt away because God is literally Emmanuel. He is with you. When you believe in the finished work of Jesus and you've received it by faith, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes inside you and begins to teach you and remind you all the things that Jesus does. And he, through you, through the work of the Holy Spirit, not your own not your own doing, not your own strengths, not your own righteousness, through the work of the Holy Spirit accomplishes the mission of God. Have you entrusted yourself to the Spirit so that you can have confidence in the mission of God? Because whenever you know that you, you know, there's no, what can man do to you, really? Whenever you come under the conviction that the Holy Spirit dwells within me the same way that it's dwelled in the temple of the living God in the Old Testament, whenever you, who cares if you can't answer everyone's questions? Who cares if people think that you're a hypocrite? The, the, the Spirit of God reminds you that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can live boldly for him because he is working in and through us. We can have boldness to share the message of the gospel. So I encourage you, are you a part of this movement? Have you submitted yourself to the working of the Holy Spirit? Have your, have your mind and your heart been captured by the message of the gospel so much that you can't help but speak what you've seen and heard in the good news of Jesus? Are you a part of the movement or are you just part of the meeting? Are you part of the movement or just part of the meeting? That's an answer that uh, has to be answered by your understanding of the message of faith that the, that the apostles preached and proclaimed throughout the whole world until it got here to us in Lubbock, Texas. So what's my next steps? My next steps are very simple. 
Next steps are very simple. If you don't know, if you don't know how to, how to move forward, ask. The congregation, this congregation, the leadership here, we want to be a part of the movement of the mission of God. And maybe your first bold uh, risk for Jesus is to say, hey, I haven't got this thing figured out. And I need, I need the help of the person uh, that, you, that greeted you in the hallway. Maybe it's someone at the next step table. I'm not sure. But your first step is to say, hey, I want to live and be a part of the movement and mission of God. And I'm risking by saying, I don't have it all figured out. Can you help me? That's a, that's a great first step. There's a, there's a membership class today that we encourage you to be a part of. It's at 1 o'clock. If you, if you say, Wait, hey, I want to know more about the purpose and why Redeemer Church exists here in Lubbock, Texas, I encourage you to go to that. There's grow group trainings like every week that you can be a part of, which is the thing that uh, Davis, Parker, and Caleb talked about in that video. I encourage you to, to be a part of that. They're just reading through the Bible. It's very, very simple. And they're trying to understand what it means and see how it produces faith within them to propel them out on the mission of God. There's, there's so many first steps that you can take. There's so many first te- steps, that, but it's going to require you to risk. Are you to the point in your faith, in your faith assessment, that you can say, you, you know what, I love Jesus so much that I'm willing to do something that's a little inconvenient for the sake of knowing and moving and understanding how great God is. So that's our, that's our steps. That's our steps. And I want just to encourage us, let's be a movement. Don't you want that? How boring is it just to come to a place and make a checklist and say, yeah, I've done my religious thing for the week. Let's be a part of the movement, a movement of God. And here's the thing. If you're in this room and you're like, man, you daggum Christians, you're always trying to convert people, aren't you? You will not shut up about this, will you? No, we won't. Because we know that the mission is true and the message is true and the mission will be accomplished by the Spirit of God and we just want to say, God, use us for your glory. Use us for your glory. How could we not? How could we not? The message is that important and we encourage you to believe it. So let's pray and then we'll take our next steps. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the message. We thank you for the mission. We thank you for the Spirit. We thank you that uh, you're in charge of it all. Um, Lord, I pray that you produce deeper faith today. I pray that as we respond and as we think and as we reflect on the finished work of Jesus right now, that you propel us forward in the mission of God. Do so because you love us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.